pray in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. And take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke chapter 24. If you're using the Bible in your row, it's on page 885. Um, And it's a strange feeling that after four and a half years in this book, uh, Luke's Gospel, we're in the home stretch. After today, by my count, we only have three more sermons from Luke's Gospel. Last Lord's Day, we peered over the shoulder of a group of faithful women who went to Jesus' tomb and they looked in and saw that the tomb was empty and we were looking over their shoulder and saw that the tomb was empty. But so far in Luke's gospel, we haven't actually encountered the risen Lord Jesus yet. That's going to change today. As we see him walking down this road, the road to Emmaus, and he engages with these two people, these two disciples who were journeying home after a long, difficult Passover week. The Passover was the biggest of the, the, the Jewish annual feast. Hundreds of thousands of Jews went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, but this was a Passover unlike any other because it was at that Passover that the Lord Jesus was arrested tried, beaten, and crucified. And these two disciples are making their way back to Emmaus and they're heartbroken. And Jesus encounters them. And what's really fascinating about this text is that his goal was not to amaze them with the resurrection, but rather to teach them, uh, to give them an understanding of who he is. And that's going to be incredibly important because in a matter of weeks, Christ will be gone. He'll be ascended back to heaven. And what he's doing in these verses as the three of them walk together to Emmaus is he's teaching them how to walk with him and how to worship him even when he's not physically present with them. So listen now to the reading of God's word, Luke 24, starting in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And and then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a, a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they didn't find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. 
Some of, us who, some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were there with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. In 1605, Miguel de Cervantes wrote what became known as the first novel, Don Quixote. And one of the things that makes Don Quixote fascinating, apart from the fact that it was, it was a novelty as a novel, is that it has a series of stories within the story, and it it became immensely popular. But in Spain in those days, there were no intellectual property laws. And so another author, having read Don Quixote, decided, I'm going to write volume two. It wasn't nearly as well written, and it was far from the purpose that de Cervantes had originally intended. And so de Cervantes took up the pen again, and he wrote his own second volume. And what's fascinating about it is in the second volume, the characters are actually aware of this other pseudo-second volume that had been written about them. And what they're doing in the second volume is setting out to make the man pay who had written about them so poorly. It's fascinating to see this story within a story. You know, that's a literary technique that authors use because what it does is it helps us put ourselves into the story. When we see the characters step into the story within a story, it helps us to do the same thing. And to ask the question, where do I fit into this story? Or another way of saying it would be, where does this story fit into me. That's what Luke's doing here. Remember, going all the way back to to Luke 1, he wrote this book to a friend of his, Theophilus. And he told Theophilus in the fourth verse, I'm writing these things so that you may be sure, that you may be certain about everything that you've heard about Jesus. And Luke had done this tremendous amount of research in order to give Theophilus a an accurate account of the story of Christ. Now, if you remember, and if you've been with us over the last couple of years, once we hit Luke 9.51, Jesus started a journey. That journey went from Galilee in the north, and it ended on the cross at Calvary. 
well over half of Luke's gospel is devoted to that travel narrative, to that journey story. And then Luke gives us here in this text, Luke's the only gospel writer that tells us this account about the Emmaus Road. He gives us these two men on a journey of their own. It's a story within a story. It's a journey within a journey. And the story involves two characters, Cleopas and another disciple. We don't know who these disciples were, but they don't appear to have been any of the apostles because we're told that they run and tell the other 11 apostles. We know one of them is named Cleopas. It's kind of an ironic name. It means vision of glory. And yet, this man has no glory about him right now. He is, is distraught. He's utterly depressed. Now, Cleopas may be the same person as John 19 talks about, Clopas. And, and we don't really know anything about Clopas there, but the wife of Clopas was a lady named Mary. That's not a big surprise, somebody in the New Testament named Mary. But she was one of the women weeping at the foot of the cross. So that may have been the wife of, uh, of Clopas or Cleopas. Now, what's possible, and, and we don't tend to read it this way in our minds, but it's possible that the other person with Cleopas was his wife. The, the grammar doesn't rule that out, so it's very possible that it was his wife along with him. And they're traveling from Jerusalem back to Emmaus. It's about seven miles, and they have incredible sorrow upon their shoulders. And as they're walking, there's a stranger that encounters them, somebody they don't seem to recognize, and they don't have Luke narrating for them like we do, and so they don't know that this stranger is Jesus. I'm not going to get into the issue of, of how they didn't recognize him, especially if this was Mary, uh, the wife of Clopas, who had been there when, when Jesus was hanging on the cross. I'm not going to try to explain it, but I do know this, that it's a, a physical picture of a spiritual reality. Until Jesus opens people's eyes to see him, we are blind to who he is. It's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. That same reality is true with our hearts. You can spend your whole life in church and not know Jesus at all. The stranger says to him, what are you two talking about? Now, you didn't have cars in those days, so it was common to, to be on these journeys by foot, and it wasn't a rude interruption for Jesus to say that. It was normal to strike up conversations. So he says, what are you, what are you two talking about? What's, what's got you so down? And Cleopas says to him, you have got to be kidding me. Are you the only person in Jerusalem that doesn't know what's been going on? for the Passover week, the, the name on everybody's lips was Jesus and what had happened to him. And so Cleopas says, are you kidding me? And then in this amazing dramatic irony, he starts to explain to literally the only person who did understand in Jerusalem what had happened. He explained to him the events of that week. I told you last week, and I'll say it again, we have to be confused at times about who Jesus is, don't we? Because all of us have an image of Jesus, an idea of Jesus that sort of fits neatly into some compartment of our life, some corner of our life. We can bring him out when we're ready to worship or when we are in desperate need and we can pray to him, but all of us to some degree or another have such a small image of who Jesus is. 
And it was in the midst of these two people's confusion that our Lord met with them and he started to teach them. Or perhaps more appropriately, we could say he takes them on a journey. Of course, it's a physical journey uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, but it's a spiritual journey. They, they didn't realize it, but he's taking them on a, a journey through the Old Testament where he's going to show these two people who have likely studied the Old Testament all their lives, he's going to show them for the first time what it's all about. They have not understood And so Jesus teaches them. This was probably a two-hour journey. We don't know what percentage of the time he was teaching them, but he he gave them the greatest Old Testament sermon in the history of the world. And then they finally get to Emmaus, and Jesus, it says, acted as if he were going on. I don't think he's trying to fool them. He may have had plans to go elsewhere. He may have been waiting for an invitation rather than inviting himself on but they show hospitality. The scriptures teach us to show hospitality, and so they invite him in for a meal, and he breaks bread. It may have been that he was the eldest out of the group, that he broke the bread. We don't know why it was him, but as he gave thanks and broke the bread, perhaps they saw his nail wounds. Perhaps they thought, we've seen him break bread before, and suddenly the scales came off their eyes, and they realized this is Jesus. He is risen indeed. And it's amazing. As soon as they realize it, he vanishes. And then these people who have taken this two-hour journey, the seven-mile journey to Emmaus, they take off running right back to Jerusalem to go tell everybody what they've seen. But they go back as transformed people. How do they describe it? They say in verse 32, Didn't our hearts burn within us? I don't think they're talking about physically here. It's it's certainly possible. But I think what they're saying is this. The cold, frosty, outward religion that we have practiced for so long that is full of ritual, it's full of outward stuff, melted away. We got thawed out. Because we have stood in the presence of Jesus. And it warmed our hearts. We were thawed by the warmth of his living, breathing word. I told you Luke is the only gospel writer who tells this story. And I think he does this. The reason he tells this story within the story is to say this. Theophilus, has this happened to you? Has your heart been thawed, or is it still stuck in the frozen veneer of external religiosity? Is it still stuck in the veneer of outward ritual, or has Jesus Christ warmed you with his word? Has he set your heart aglow so that the gospel is not something that bores you to death, but it excites you, it makes you alive? I think that's why Luke tells the story is, to say to Theophilus, has this happened to you? I want you to see three things that Jesus teaches them here. First, he's going to teach them about his person. In other words, he's going to reveal to them who he is and what he came to do. Second, he teaches them about his power, namely the power of the resurrection. And third, he teaches them about his presence. That though he will soon be physically departed, he teaches them that he will be with them always. 
So that's what we're going to look at today, his person, his power, and his presence. Look with me first at his person. It's kind of a humorous scene here. The the two are distraught. They're depressed because Jesus is gone, and suddenly he's in front of them, and they have no idea who it is. And it wouldn't have been a surprise if we were reading this passage and Jesus said, you know, you guys have a real vision problem. It's me. But instead, Look what he says in verse 25. He says, you have a heart problem. That's fascinating, isn't it? He says, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Now, what's he talking about the prophets? He's talking about the Old Testament, the 39 books of the Old Testament. They had those 39 books just as as we do. And Jesus says, you've read it all your life. You affirm it as true and you have no idea what it's about. You might think, well, how could they have been diligent, lifelong students of the Bible and not understand? Friends, that happens every day, doesn't it? I see it every day. People who have been in, their, in church all their life, and they completely miss the point of the Scriptures. And they think it's a dead religion rather than a living hope. Think about that even as you think about where you fit into this story, has it gone from a dead religion to a living hope for you? We're told that Jesus took them through the Scriptures. Look at verse 27. He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus opened up those 39 books of the Old Testament to them and showed them where he was on every page. Now, we weren't privy to that conversation as to how each book of the Bible pointed to him. But, but I can imagine it would have gone something like this. He could have said, let's just turn to Genesis 1. Of course, they didn't have copies of God's Word at hand, but they knew the Scriptures. And he said, let's just go to Genesis 1. I'm going to show you from there where I was at the creation. That he's the creator of all things. Well, let's, go, let's just flip over two pages. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3. You mean Jesus is in Genesis chapter 3? Oh yeah, the, the fall happens, sin comes into the world, God pronounces the curse, but he says this to the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Jesus is going to say to them, that's me, I'm the seed of the woman, I'm the serpent crusher. He might have gotten to Genesis 22 when Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, and he might have explained it would have done no good for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac because Isaac's blood couldn't take away sins. But he might have told them about the ram that was in the thicket so that Isaac could be spared, and Jesus might have said to them, I'm that ram. He could have told them how he was the serpent lifted up on the staff in the wilderness by Moses. He could have told them how he was the Passover lamb. He could have told them how he was the scapegoat of the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. He could have told them how he was David's son who is David's Lord. He could have told them how he is the fulfillment of the temple. In other words, you can open up the Scriptures, any of the 39 books of the Old Testament, and you know what you're going to find? You're going to find Jesus Christ. The unity of the Old Testament really is a fascinating thing. And y'all may get tired of hearing Pastor Walton and I say this, but it is one story from Genesis to Revelation. It's 39 books written over the span of a thousand years from people from different countries, different cultures, different backgrounds. You have people who were farmers and kings and shepherds and priests and prophets 
over the span of a thousand years in different countries writing one story. And the purpose of that one story wasn't to tell us about some obscure family in some obscure part of the Middle East. The thing that holds the pages of the Old Testament together is that every one of them points to Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is teaching them there. He's showing them how all the scriptures point to him. And because they had gotten his word wrong, they didn't understand that. They didn't understand who he was. Look at Cleopas' words in verse 19. He says, Jesus was a prophet mighty in word and deed before God and all the people. Now, he's absolutely right, but that's just a small part of who he was. He was exponentially greater than just a prophet. He's the son of the living God. He's God in the flesh. And though they believed true things about him from the scriptures, they underestimated who he was. The Jewish people had been looking for a Messiah for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years who would come and give them deliverance, but they didn't understand that the Messiah would be God himself in the flesh. And so because they were confused about his word, that meant they were confused about who he was, which meant they were confused about his work. Look at verse 21. Cleopas says, We had hoped that he was the one who would deliver Israel. That's language straight out of the Old Testament. That's pointing back to a character like a Moses who delivered Israel out of Egyptian slavery. And now Israel once again is in bondage. That was the story of so much of their history. They're in bondage this time to Rome. And they're hoping that one greater than Moses has come to set them free from Rome's oppression. And that he would come and redeem Israel and establish a a socio-political kingdom of Israel and drive out Rome and set up his throne and bring all the world into submission to God's law. That was what a pious Jew desired. But they didn't understand that his work was far greater. They didn't understand that his goal was not to set them free from political oppression, but slavery to sin and one day yes he will wear the crown but what they didn't understand is he would first have to bear the cross look at what jesus says to cleopas in verse 26 it was necessary that the christ should suffer these things and then enter into glory They were well acquainted with the scriptures, but they did not understand that the messiah would be a suffering servant They didn't understand, even back in Genesis 3.15, that the one who was going to crush the serpent's head would himself get his heel bruised. He himself would be hurt in the process. They had no room for a lamb who would take away the sins of the world by his own death. They had no room for an Isaiah 53 suffering servant. In fact, today, even still, Jews in many places are prohibited from reading Isaiah 53 because written 700 years before the birth of Christ, it so clearly prefigures a suffering servant who would go through all the things that Jesus went through. Why was it necessary for Christ to suffer? Why did the cross come before the crown? Because without a suffering sacrifice, we have no forgiveness of sins. 
The, the, the New Testament says it this way, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. That's what the Old Testament had taught through thousands, millions of sacrifices, whether it was a lamb, a bull, a goat, a pigeon, whatever it was, those sacrifices gave one message. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's what Jesus came to do. And so that's the first thing he teaches them is his person, who he is and what he came to do. Then Jesus teaches them a second thing here, and it's about his power. Again, they're distraught. The Messiah has been buried three days. Now they had heard him say something about on the third day rise, but they hadn't seen it for themselves. And Passover's finished. Jesus is dead. Life's getting ready to go back to normal. And they're thinking to themselves with broken hearts, God, we had hoped that you had finally come to rescue us. But we were wrong. They're utterly disappointed. Now, let me ask you, friends, before we go any further, have you ever been disappointed by the providence of God? that you had a plan that God should have followed. And when he didn't follow your plan, it utterly disappointed you. It hurt you. And I'm talking about serious stuff. Uh, You walk into your boss's office hoping for a promotion and you leave without a job. Or you feel as if you're young and in the prime of your life and you get a serious medical diagnosis or praying for a loved one to be healed and the Lord chooses not to, at least in this world. It may even be the small stuff, frustration when friends cancel plans with you and you get upset with them or when you lose your temper with with your children because they make a mess. You know, all of us have a plan for how we think this world ought to go and when the providence of God doesn't line up with our plan, it can be utterly disappointing. It can be extraordinarily frustrating. And I think that the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they felt that times about a thousand They had expected Jesus to redeem Israel, but their hopes were buried with him, and they assume it's all over. But when their eyes were opened for the first time, they saw that Jesus' suffering and death were not only predicted on every page of Scripture, but they were necessary for a deliverance that was far more glorious than anything they had hoped for. In that moment, they learned that not only was Jesus alive, but Jesus has conquered the grave. And if God is powerful enough to resurrect a crucified, buried Savior, then you and I ought to live with no doubt of the power of God. I I can remember years ago talking with one of my mentors, a man named Douglas Kelly, um, and we were discussing a couple that we knew whose marriage was, was miserable. It was miserable. It was obviously miserable. And I said to him, I think it's hopeless. Normal thing to say, right? And he looked at me utterly appalled. And he said, how can you say something is hopeless when Jesus is risen from the dead? When Jesus is on his throne, there is nothing that is hopeless. Because we have seen the power of God. That if a dead man can be raised, then God can do whatever he wants to do. That was for me, that was 12, 15 years ago, that was an Emmaus Road moment of I I began to learn and understand the power of this God teaching me to relinquish my plan and my control and trust his. 
Beloved, no matter your circumstances, no matter what disappointment you face right now about life, about work, about your marriage, about your children, whatever your anxieties are about your future, your Savior is powerful enough to overcome the grave. And there is not one circumstance on the face of this earth and even in hell that he cannot overcome. There is not one thing that exceeds his power. And so Jesus is teaching them here by the fact of his resurrection, his almighty power. Well, then he teaches them a third thing. And I think this is really the heart of the passage. This is the life-changing takeaway for these men. Jesus begins to teach them about his presence. You know, this whole scene begs a question, doesn't it? Jesus joins with them. They're distraught, and they start walking, and they have this two-hour journey. Why didn't Jesus, when he saw their grief, why did he let them go on in their sorrow? Why didn't he look at them and say, Open your eyes, you fools, it's me! Because he wanted them to learn to find his presence not in his flesh, but in his word. That's an incredibly important point. That he would be with them, not physically, but spiritually, every day for the rest of their lives. But they had to learn where to seek him. They had to learn the right place. That's why he didn't say to them, look what your glorified bodies are going to look like. He says, look into the Scriptures with me. Doesn't it show us something about priorities that as soon as Jesus comes out of the grave, he wants to talk about the Bible? And doesn't it show us what our priorities should be? Not so much the seen, but the unseen. Because within 40 days of his resurrection, he would ascend. He would no longer be with them physically. So how would they find him? How do you and I find Jesus today? Do we find him in his flesh? Now, we'll see that when we get to glory, but the way we find him today is in his word. The point of the scene here is to teach them how to find him. Hebrews says the Word of God is living and active. How is a a 2,000-year-old book living and active? Because Christ lives in it. Martin Luther has this great quote. He says, the Bible is alive. It speaks to me. It has feet. It runs after me. It has hands. It lays hold of me. When we come to His Word by faith, He meets with us there. That's what he's teaching. I want you to see that. We get several clues that that's exactly what Jesus wants to teach about his own presence. Look, First, look what happens as soon as they realize it's Jesus. Verse 31, their eyes were open and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. That's disappointing, isn't it? You finally realize it's Jesus and he disappears. But that's the point. That we don't need the visible, physical phenomena to walk with Christ. What do we need? We need his word. 
And then there's a second clue that that's what he wants to teach us. Look at their response in verse 32. Didn't our hearts burn within us? That, you know that when you've had something in the freezer too long and it's not only frozen, but it's covered, it's freezer burnt. The presence of Jesus has melted that away. He's thawed their hearts. Now, did did they say, didn't our hearts burn within us when we were around his glorified body? That's not what they said. They said, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? You know, I can tell you, this is one of my favorite experiences as a pastor. When people's hearts begin to warm to the presence of Christ. These are the people that... You don't have to coax them into coming to church. You don't have to convince them to pay attention. These are people who desire, who long to meet with Jesus. Scottish pastor tells the story of a time that he and his elders were interviewing two teenage boys for membership. And they said, tell us what changes have taken place in your life that would lead us to believe you are converted. One of the boys said, oh no, the change wasn't in us. The change was in you. You know, up till about six months ago, you were the most boring pastor we'd ever heard. And all that changed about six months ago. Now what changed? It wasn't the pastor. It was the men. They had had come alive. Their hearts had been warmed to Christ. They had been born again. And the preaching began to be relevant to them. And the worship became enjoyable, and Sunday was no longer a day they dreaded, but a, joy, a day that they rejoiced in. It's exactly what we heard in our call to worship, that if you call the Sabbath of delight, he will cause you to rejoice. You know, some of you, this is you. You come to church week after week, and you delight to be in God's Word with God's people. And I'm convinced Most of you, if you say to me, that was a good sermon, it's because you've been staying warm all week. You brought the kindling with you. It's easy to start a fire when the people's hearts are already warm to Christ. There's a third clue here. Look at their disposition as they walk back to Jerusalem alone. Jesus has vanished. They don't know if they're ever going to see him again physically. Now they do in a few minutes, but They don't know that at this point, and they're absolutely overflowing with joy. They're they're, they're welling over with joy. He's not in their presence physically, but he's with them spiritually, isn't he? And the joy of the Lord is their strength. He is physically absent, and yet his joy is with them. You know, joy ought to be one of the main marks of a Christian. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. But we find joy not in the physical signs and visible symbols of our faith. We find it in the presence of Jesus Christ as his word is read and preached and prayed and sung and shown forth in the sacraments. Now, if you're an unbeliever, you're probably thinking, are you saying to me, that this book is more beneficial to us than if Jesus' physical body were with us today? You might be thinking, if Jesus walked in that room 
and I could see his nail-pierced hands, I would believe. You know, if you don't believe because of his word, you wouldn't believe if he walked through that door with nail-pierced hands. I want you to look with me at Luke 16 for a moment. This is the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man was uh, an unbeliever. Lazarus was a believer. He begged at the rich man's gate every day. The rich man scorned him. They both died. Lazarus was in heaven. Sometimes people have taken it to mean that Lazarus was in heaven because of his poverty. That's utterly foolish. There's one way. There's one name under which men may be saved as the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lazarus was in heaven. The rich man was in hell. Now, there's a lot there that we could talk about. But look with me at Luke 16, 27. This is the rich man in hell speaking. And he said, then I beg you, Father, this is Father Abraham. Then I beg you, Father, to send Lazarus to my house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham's saying here, you don't need a visible sign of a resurrected body. You need the presence of Jesus Christ in his word. Has that been your story? Uh, I think Luke is saying to Theophilus, has this happened to you? He loved Theophilus. He longed for Theophilus to, to come to saving faith and to treasure Christ and to live his life in the presence of Christ. Has your heart been warmed? And beloved, I ask you the same question. This is the story in which you find yourself. Jesus Christ is risen. He lives. He lives in his word. Has your heart been warmed by him? Uh, You know the name John Wesley. Wesley was probably one of the most famous ministers in the last three centuries. Did you know that on John Wesley's first mission trip to the United States, he was going to Georgia? And he was an unbeliever. He was a pastor in the Church of England. And in his own diary, he wrote these words, I hope to learn the true sense of the gospel by preaching it to the heathen. He didn't understand the same message he was commissioned to proclaim. He had a miserable time in Georgia, saw no fruit. He himself was depressed. On the way back, he shared a ship with a a group of Moravian Christians on the way back to England. They got caught in a storm. Wesley was fearful. The crew was fearful. And he looked at these Moravian Christians and he saw that their hearts were calm. They knew they were in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he saw such a radical difference in them. And it got to Wesley. It took time. But Wesley knew he didn't have what they had. And he finally came to saving faith. And here's how he described it. He said, I sensed my heart was strangely warmed. I don't think he means heartburn. I think he means the the chill fell off. 
the frozen dead religion that he had practiced for so long was gone. And the warmth of knowing Jesus Christ personally had taken its place. And it melted his heart. Theophilus, has that happened to you? Has that happened to you? Has it happened to you that that the presence of Jesus Christ has melted away the frigid self-righteousness that all of us have? That it's melted away the externalism where we worship God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. And in saying this to Theophilus, whom he loved so much, I say it to you, whom I love so much. Has your heart been warmed by the Lord Jesus? Have you come to see him not just as a group of stories, not just as symbols, but as your Savior? How do we apply this text? I've got four applications. No, three applications. I'll cut it short. How about that? Actually, I just combined two into one, but I'll call it three. What do you do when your heart's cold? Because as Christians, and Pastor Walton made a great point of this during Sunday school, we know that we need God's word, but we don't always want God's word. Oftentimes we go through seasons of spiritual chilliness where we don't have that hunger. We don't draw near to the fire. Do you know what happens when you distance yourself from God's word? You get colder and colder. It's the opposite of what we should do. When you sense your heart growing cold, growing indifferent, growing frosty, and your religion being external, and when you come to sing, you say, I just don't feel it. Run to the word. You need it then more than ever. And especially in the midst of sadness and depression. I know there are folks in our congregation who struggle with with sadness and depression. It's a stubborn darkness that in our depression we typically cannot look beyond ourselves and our circumstances. That's the time to make yourself run to Christ because Christ alone can shine light into your darkness. He may fix it. He may not. But his presence will be sufficient regardless. C.S. Lewis, in his essay, Till We Have Faces, said, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. In other words, why you don't always take away the pain or the darkness. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, all questions melt away. Second, Jesus teaches us here uh, about evangelism. He's doing evangelism here. We're going to come to the Great Commission Luke's version in a couple weeks. I want you to see two things Jesus does as he's evangelizing. First, he doesn't just preach to them. He starts by asking questions. He asks a question. This is one of the things we learn from Jesus again and again about evangelism. He asks questions. It not only shows people his interest, but it causes people to work out what they actually believe out loud. Have you ever said something out loud and thought, where did that come from? 
Ask people about their worldview. Ask people what they trust in. But, 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 but let a key to our evangelism be asking questions. And then second, the second part of his evangelism is he takes them to the scriptures, doesn't he? He doesn't say to them, yeah, the Old Testament's really confusing. I don't blame you. He opens them up and explains it. The same thing we see in Acts 7, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. That's got to be our goal in, in evangelism is to drive people to the word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Final application. This is perhaps the most poignant point in this that may be a rebuke to many of our hearts. We need to remember the sufficiency of Christ in worship. You know, through the years, especially when we met in a, in a school building for seven years, people would say stuff like this. If, it's not a, if you don't have a building, it's not a real church. If you don't have pews, it's not a real church. If you don't have an organ, it's not a real church. Friends, those things are good. We, we now have a building, pews, and an organ. But if we believe we have to have those things to be a real church, to do real worship, that's idolatry. Anything you think you have to have beyond Jesus Christ is idolatry in our worship. Uh, fill in the blank here. Let your own heart tell you if Christ is sufficient. If a church doesn't have a blank, it's not a real church. The only thing that can fit in that blank is if a church doesn't have the presence of Christ through his word, it's not a real church. See, what Jesus is teaching us in this text is that our worship doesn't lie in visible, physical phenomena associated with Christianity. It lies in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ who promises to be with us as his word is read and preached and prayed and sung and shown forth in the sacraments. And so rather than our hearts asking, why don't we have this or why don't we have that? We ought to ask ourselves the more penetrating question, why isn't Jesus enough? He is because he is with us. Let's pray together. Lord God in heaven, we praise you for your word, that it is indeed sufficient, that as your word is preached, read, prayed, sung, and shown forth, Jesus Christ meets with his people. God, our fickle hearts sometimes want more. We would love to see that resurrected body. But it's through the word that we come to faith. There were many that saw the resurrected body and yet did not believe. May that not be so of us as the word is read, preached, prayed, sung, and shown forth in the sacraments because Jesus